Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. I'm your host, Patrick Farnsworth. Before I introduce the guest for this episode, I first just want to thank the patrons of the podcast for their continual support. And if you would also like to become a patron, a continual supporter of this podcast through Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. You can start at a dollar a month, or you can do more than that, of course, but you can start at a dollar. You'll get early access to all these interviews before I release them publicly. You'll gain access to the Discord server where we have some really engaging discussions. Uh, At certain levels, at certain tiers, you'll get merchandise. And in general, you'll just be helping me continue this work. Uh, This takes a lot of time and effort to put out. There are no ads. There's no sponsorships, nothing like that. I keep it very simple. But if you are able and willing to support this work through Patreon, please consider doing that. And uh, that's basically it, everybody. Enjoy the episode. Independent political analyst and Counterpunch Radio host Eric Dreitzer returns to the podcast to provide an update on the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. The last time we spoke about the subject was March 2nd, and that was seven days into the initial invasion. Eight months into this war, I ask Eric, where do the Russians and Ukrainians stand in this blatant war of aggression by Putin? Who stands to gain from prolonging this conflict? What are Russia and NATO's endgame? For all the calls for an end to the conflict through negotiation, what, in fact, could or would that even look like? As the war drags on, we look on in horror as this neocolonialist, revanchist invasion grinds more human bodies on the fields of battle. Russia, to meet the imperialist vision laid out before the world, conscript thousands of men to continue this war. Many more flee the country to escape such a dire fate. While Ukraine is reduced to rubble, Russian society is flung into numerous cascading crises, both material and existential in scope. Geopolitical conflicts proliferate across Europe and Asia, generating new and pre-existing tensions between nations. Eric, in covering this war since its first days, provides a measured and nuanced overview of events as they stand today. So that is more or less an overview of what we go over in this hour-long interview. Thanks to Eric for his continual level-headed analysis of this situation. It is very difficult to, I think, walk this very fine line of accepting ambiguity and nuance, having a principled stance against imperialism, against war, against all of the things that are occurring right now, having, again, a very balanced view of what's happening. I mean, this is a, a really complex situation, as you will hear Eric describe in this interview. So learn more about Eric's work. You can follow him on YouTube. You can keep up to date with him on social media. And you can also subscribe to his work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eric I'll be putting links to all of that down in the description. So again, thank you all for your attention. Here's my interview with Eric Dreitzer. Eric, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So happy to have you here. Um, I wanted to have you on to have a discussion about the war in Ukraine, uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine. When we, when I had you on last, it was early March. I was looking at that episode recently. Uh, I think I recorded it like March 2nd and released it like March 3rd. It was like a really quick release. Um, obviously, at that point, we were seven days into the war at, at that point. So there was a, it was, you know, a world shifting kind of event, you know, and needed to talk to you because you have such a a good grasp of the situation. You, I I think your analysis on that particular concept among, or or sorry, that particular event among so many others, you you provide such a nuanced and I think a very careful analysis. And so to have you back again to... Uh, just to really just give us some insights into what's going on, how this whole event is playing out now that we're so deep into it. You know, there's so much to talk about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, where do I begin? Um, you know, I'm, I think that, I mean, I have to admit, I didn't go back and listen to the interview. Oh, no, did. it's okay. <laughs> so, I didn't either. I just looked at the description. I'm like, oh, yeah, so, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how prescient or not prescient I may have been um, in that 
discussion. But I will say that for the most part, um, I feel like most of the predictions that I made have borne out. Um, I think that I was for the most part accurate. Now, I admit I was incorrect, as were most other uh, people, you know, analysts and so forth, that um, I didn't think that the Russians would ever do this in the first place. So the fact that they did it, uh, mm. I admit I was in, I was wrong about that. Um, but since they've done this monumental historic blunder, I think that uh, for the most part, I've been, you know, accurate. And I don't say that because like, oh, you know, that's great for me. I mean, to say that that worries me tremendously, because I thought that this would go very badly for the Russians. And it has. And because it's gone badly for the Russians, that then uh, narrows the uh, horizon of options that the Russians have, which of course, makes the situation for all of us much more dangerous as the Russians feel that, um, you know, their options dwindle and things like the nuclear option, the literal nuclear option become much more, um, I don't want to say likely, but much more possible. They, mm-hmm. they, they enter into the realm of the possible and that alone is, uh, quite terrifying. But, um, you know, to, to be more specific, you know, in, in the last, Two months or so, what we've really been focused on is the counteroffensive by the Ukrainian military that began, you know, about two months ago now, and it's been tremendously successful. They have managed to pry away much of the territory, uh, maybe not much, but they've, they've pried away a significant portion of the territory that the Russians had taken initially. So when you and I had uh, been speaking in early March, the Russians had quickly taken control of vast swaths of territory as sections of the uh, Ukrainian military and Ukrainian intelligence had uh, been asleep at the wheel, collapsed, and otherwise had been overrun by the Russians. All of that has been reversed, or much of those gains have been reversed. The Ukrainians are in a much stronger position now than they were then. So that also creates a, you know, kind of a worrying situation where, again, all signs point to a prolonged conflict. And uh, I have to admit that I've been saying for months that this is how this was going to go, that this is going to be kind of a slow burn conflict, a slow burning war, I think. And uh, I don't believe that there's going to be any kind of sweeping success for either side. I also fear that we are quite quite a ways away uh, still from any meaningful negotiations or any meaningful peace process. Um, What would that even mean? What would that even look like? I suppose we probably have time to talk about that Mm -hmm. later. But, um, you know, there are many questions abound about what that would even look like. But I only bring it up in this context to say that we're in a we're in a dangerous situation. On the one hand, it seems very normal now. This war has been going on for quite a while. It's kind of every day. It's sort of receded into the background as other things have come to dominate the headlines, particularly in the West, particularly when, you know, whatever the latest shiny object in the, you know, the news ticker is and people's Mm. attention is taken away. And, um, you know, so in that regard, it's, it's kind of like we're in a lull, but also a very dangerous moment. Putin has, recently made a number of statements suggesting, you know, again, the specter of uh, nuclear weapons entering into the conflict. And I would, I I think it's probably uh, worth noting, again, that we're talking in terms of the use of nuclear weapons, we're talking tactical nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. not strategic Mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, we're not talking about, you know, Hiroshima sized, you know, city destroying Bombs. We're talking about the kind of bombs that would eradicate a section of the battlefield, that would destroy a ta- a small village, whatever it might mm-hmm. be. You know what I mean? So, we're, not that that makes it acceptable. Of course, it doesn't. I just to provide some scale for what we're talking about, so people understand that they're not envisioning mushroom clouds and nuclear winter globally. Um, but in any case, uh, so the situation is tense. It's dangerous. Um, I, I don't know that people really believe that it would go. This far, I think many people thought that this war would already be over, that these conflicts would have already been resolved, for better or worse, however one wants to uh, interpret the events. So in any event, that's where that's where it is on the battlefield. Now the Russians have done what they've done in terms of responding to this counteroffensive. There are innumerable war crimes. I suppose it's probably worth noting that everything involved in this war is a war crime, including the act of aggression itself, the uh, supreme crime against peace, uh, according to Nuremberg. Um, mm-hmm. um, so... 
you know, we, we not, not to say that I want to catalog every war crime. I just want to point out that as the Ukrainians mounted this counteroffensive, the Russian response has been to step up bombardment of civilian infrastructure, particularly uh, critical infrastructure like water treatment facilities, um, pipelines, uh, you know, energy depots and, and, and warehouses and things of that nature. So, um, again, war crime upon war crime upon war crime, sort of a collective punishment, but also pounding the uh, local infrastructure as winter approaches, as people are going to face harsher conditions, physically harsher conditions, and uh, the lack of clean water, the lack of, um, you know, electricity, things like that. These things are going to fundamentally alter people's lives and, you know, for the worse. So in in any case, that's what the Russians have done. Of course, there are many ways that we could uh, uh, proceed in the discussion. I mean, the the recent development of the Iranian drones uh, that the Russians have been using to bombard Kiev, using these kamikaze drones that they purchased from the Iranians. This raises a number of international questions about Russia and Iran, Russia's relations with a number of other countries as well. Um, I think we also have to keep in mind that NATO and the United States posture here is critical. Um, we should also remember that one of the ghastly outcomes of this war, or of the, or not even of the war, but of the invasion itself, um, aside from the human cost, is the fact that it gave justification to a massive expansion of NATO. We've seen NATO expand by roughly 1,000% in terms of boots on the ground in Europe just in the last nine months since Russia invaded Ukraine. We now have uh, Sweden and Finland, historically neutral countries, entering into NATO. We now have a hyper, uh, you know, um, hypercharged military machine in NATO that even was already horrendous and global in its scope and a criminal organization that is now even more so. And on top of everything else, NATO's image, its reputation has been boosted exponentially. Remember, NATO was dragged through the mud in Libya, in Afghanistan, in all of these conflicts where NATO was kind of sort of humiliated in the sense of clearly being used for something other than European defense. And here comes the Russians to invade Ukraine and all of a sudden renew the justification for NATO. Thanks, Vlad. We're going to have NATO now for at least another 50 to 100 years. You know what I mean? As So anyway... I say all of that to point out that there are many outcomes. There are like like spokes of the wheel, you know what I mean? You could you could go it, it goes in many different directions. The role that the war is playing in exacerbating inflation globally is its own podcast and own its own hour-long conversation. You know, what's happening on the global oil markets as it pertains to Russia and by the way, Russia the Saudis and Trump, which is itself an axis that is worth consideration here as it pertains to all of these other issues. So anyway, I say all of that because all of those things are on the table when we're talking about Ukraine. Everything going on globally now in one way or another is connected either directly or indirectly, you know, uh, through direct connection or tangentially with the war. So I mean, what are we what are we saying after nine months? After nine months, the war has changed everything. Yeah, and I, I mean, didn't even uh, mention Russian society. Believe me, that's yeah, its, yeah, that's its own discussion right. too. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to come up. I'm going to bring it up because okay. So there was a simplistic question I wanted to ask just to get it. Uh, an overview uh, at the beginning it was like the broad strokes of, of the sort of picture of the war and where it's going, how it's been and so on. And there's, there's almost a simplistic question I wanted to ask of like, who's winning, who's losing, you know, cause whatever. Um, through a Western media lens, it's like the Ukrainians are winning with their allies. I suppose that's NATO. Um, and Russia is just going to be packing up and leaving any day now. Um, but you're saying otherwise, which isn't that they're winning or losing, but that this is a very uh, this this conflict is is being extended into the. I mean, how long can we? Uh, we can't even predict something like this, but how long it would last? But just the the toll that is taking on on Russia, the Russian economy, 
the people of Russia, the people of Ukraine, Europe, um, you know, Russia's relations with other countries and, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's just like, how long can Russia really keep this up? Is this even a feasible operation at this point? Well, you know, let me ask you this question. Um, how long can the Europeans keep this up? How long can the United States keep this up? That's how Putin's thinking about it. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is part of the problem in all of this is that uh, the Russians, with some justification, I would add, do have at least some idea that they will be able to weather the storm longer than those that are opposing them currently. Because again, Putin uh, sees himself and his government or his regime as essentially staying in power while administrations change in the West. Mm -hmm. And so for Putin, he is certainly banking on the idea that he and his government can outlast, can, can, can sort of uh, stomach the pain, the economic and political pain that's come with sanctions, with the oil embargo, with everything else that's been implemented longer than European governments like the government in Germany or the government in Washington, for that matter, as oil prices climb into the stratosphere, as inflation pummels, uh, you know, ordinary voters, and these governments face re-elections. I mean, mm -hmm. you think that Putin doesn't know that there is a presidential election in 2024 and that Mr. Trump is likely to be the one running against Biden. I mean, come on, you know, this is all factoring into all of these calculations here. So there's no question that um, there's a tremendous amount of pain being felt by the Russians. I mean, I could run down a laundry list of things that the Russians are struggling with right now because of sanctions, because of the, um, you know, the, the, the energy conflict with Europe because of, you know, uh, uh, the freezing of their cash reserves and everything else that's gone on. Um, but at the end of the day, the Russians are thinking that they just need to outlast everybody else. And that siege mentality they think is going to carry them through. And so what does this actually mean? This means that in places like Germany, where electricity is now three times more expensive than it was this time last year, a government like Olaf Scholz's government, which has been stridently supportive of Ukraine, that that government is likely not to survive if this mm. keeps up, right? I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying that this is how Putin is thinking about these things, right? So when he thinks about how to fight in a uh, economic conflict with Germany, he's thinking, well, the right-wing party, AFD, is now the second most popular party in Germany, squeeze the German economy, cut off the energy, which they have, force the Germans into making a choice between support Ukraine or feed my family, right? Mm -hmm. This is, this is, this is how he wants to frame that issue in Europe. And this is true across the board in Italy. A fascist has recently won the election there. That fascist is not the closest of the Putin allies, but is from within the far right of Italian politics, which very much is in bed with Putin. Again, you have to see these the war in Ukraine as being kind of one theater of a broader conflict here. And uh, I think that the Russians see it that way. And uh, they're probably not wrong to think of it in that way. Certainly, they can't win this war politically. They cannot win this war economically. And it's clear that they can't really win the war uh, militarily. So they're going to need to change the equation. And I think that for Putin, uh, in his mind, nothing would change the equation more than changes of leadership in Washington and in Europe. So the seems like the long-term strategy, even if regardless of how the war plays out, whether Russia's, lo quote, losing or winning, the long-term strategy is to Russia can't lose, Patrick. Russia cannot lose. You have to understand okay. this. I'm not saying they're incapable of losing. Right. I'm saying from the Russian perspective, from in the minds of the people who are making decisions in Moscow, losing is not possible. It's not only that it would be undesirable, that it would be unpalatable, that it's politically suicidal, but that it cannot happen. Right. Mm. And that's why this is dangerous. 
because the more that Russia seems on the ropes, the more likely they escalate further. Because and and Boris Kogorlitsky recently has written about this. Other Russian uh, political analysts have written about this. That in the Russian mind, you can't lose in Ukraine. It's not possible, right? Like the mind doesn't even compute the idea, right? So every time you think Ukraine makes a, some kind of a victory, right? Whether it is uh, attacking the Kerch bridge, which connects uh, Crimea and mainland Russia, whether it was the breakthrough in uh, Kherson, uh, whether it was the counteroffensive in Donetsk, whatever it was, right? Each time this happens, the Russians escalate with the war crimes, escalate with the bombing, escalate with the artillery pieces and so forth, right? So again, showing no matter what you do, we still have more resources than you, no matter how many weapons the Americans provide to you, we're still going to pummel you. It may be painful, but it's what it's going to be, right? This is the, this is the attitude, right? This is the mindset. This is, again, the Russian mindset. If you read military history, going to World War II, siege of Leningrad mentality, right? The mentality of wave after wave of human bodies into the meat grinder until you win, you know, um, and that's where we're at. I mean, in Russia, they have a partial mobilization. They are mobilizing young men on the streets, conscripting them into the military. What do you think? These people are they, that they're just, uh, you know, pinpointing warriors and fighters. No, they're grabbing everyday Joe like you and me. Like they would just grab you and like put a gun in your hand, stick a helmet on your head and be like, OK, dude, go. And yeah. then, you know, three minutes later, you're like a body in a pile somewhere. You know what I mean? It's like so I mean, this is this is what's happening. I mean, you if you read the reports in Russia, people are talking about how there's no men. They're walking around in Moscow. There's no young men. I mean, is that doesn't that open the possibility for some kind of? I mean, I, I don't know what the situation in Russia is, obviously, but I mean, I mean, I can imagine like if the U the U S gearing up to invade Iraq, they get in there it has a, a lot of popular support. We know why propaganda, et cetera. Get in there. And they're like, okay, we need more soldiers. We're losing or whatever, or we're like struggling. So let's start conscripting young men in the United States to go fight a war. That that would lead to, I think, a situation like with Vietnam, which is why the United States never does the draft anymore, as far as I'm concerned. They don't engage in the same type of wars or the same like tactics of drafting young men. So it's like, I don't know, again, Russian history enough to know if this has been done in the past and if this has had the same kind of um, effect as it did with the U.S. and Vietnam. But, I mean, like, I'm curious if, like, as this thing goes on, like, how this is going to impact everyday Russians and their their willingness to just either sit down and let it happen or, like, say, no, fuck you. I don't want my son to go fight in this war. You know? I mean, what's the kind of... Well, that's already feeling? happening. I mean, that's yeah. already happening. Mm -hmm. Now, how widespread is it? That's another question. I mean, mm -hmm. it's certainly not... At the level that, uh, you know, it's certainly not at the level that, you know, uh, 1917, you know, we're not we're not there. Right. Because sure. in many ways, Putin is mirroring Tsar Nicholas during World War One. I. I mean, in in some ways, I mean, it's a it's kind of a silly it's kind of a silly metaphor or silly parallel because they're such different. Mm -hmm. Such different people, such different situations, everything is different, right? But yeah. there are some obvious uh, similarities in terms of the blundering, in terms of the disastrous sort of painting oneself into a corner and then just continually doubling down, you know, and um, and willingness to just send young Russian men to slaughter without any regard for strategic uh, uh, plans or ta victories, tactical or otherwise, you know. And um, much of the Russian war effort has been seen as a, bl as a blundering disaster, even within Russia, you know. I mean, if you follow Russian telegram channels, I, I, which I do, you know, uh, on the right especially, I mean, they are livid at the military, at the intelligence services for, you know, Failing. I mean, from their perspective, failing. Ukraine is a smaller country than Russia. Ukraine is much weaker than Russia, relatively speaking. I mean, Ukraine is advanced in its own ways, you know, but it's certainly not Russia, right? Russia should have steamrolled 
at least this is the perspective of a yeah, lot yeah. of these right wing Russian types, you know. So uh, in any event, um, they're not they're not happy. And actually, that's an interesting point to raise, too, because Putin has elements to his right that are of concern to him. You know, you have to keep in mind that Putin is not like the furthest right on the Russian mm-hmm. political spectrum. You know, there are super ultra patriots. Right. And in fact, one of the reasons to your point. Patrick, about um, um, the mobilization, one of the reasons for the mobilization is that the Russians, in my view, uh, painted themselves into a corner with their own propaganda, using the propaganda of civilizational confrontation, right? That the, that the West was Russophobic and was destroy, you know, hell-bent on destroying Russia itself, on destroying the Russian state, on, destro- on, on eradicating Russian people, Right. They frame this war as a confrontation with the Western world, with the transgendered, you know, LGBT, Mm. you know, Western Mm. world. Right. The clash of values and civilizations and so forth. Right. So in in some sense, like once you kind of have gone with that, like, okay, this is my this is the horse I'm riding, you know, the super patriot like. We got to defeat the West to save Russia, you know, make Russia, make Russia great again kind of shit, you know, like this is what we're going to be doing. And then everything goes sideways and you're desperate for more soldiers. You have to start conscripting people. You've already told them that it's an existential struggle. What are you going to do? Walk away from Mm. an existential struggle? What are you going to do? Sue for peace in an existential struggle? This is this is where... In, in a weird way, maybe it's somewhat paradoxical, but like the propaganda is almost leading the mm. policies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The propaganda is out ahead of the policymakers in a, in a sad and, you know, ironic sort of way. Wow. Yeah, I wanted to ask about this regarding propaganda. I mean, has the, has the narrative or the rhetoric... Or any of that changed in the months since this war began? I mean, I mean, I imagine like it's like I'm sorry, I just have to again compare it to the U.S. invading Iraq. There were elements that were brought up at certain points in this the, the invasion and occupation of Iraq, where it was yes, Saddam Hussein's connected to Al Qaeda. There's weapons of mass destruction. This is an existential threat to the United States and our you know, all of this. And then as the war went on, there were different sort of justifications that were brought up to, again, justify the continued occupation of Iraq. Um, Has that, has there been a similar pattern with the Russian invasion? Of course. I mean, of course it's, you know, let me, let me back up. I, must have been right around when you and I spoke. What mm-hmm. what was the date you said of that of that interview? I think we recorded it March 1st or March 2nd. Well, I had an article that must have come out within days of that interview mm. called The Kremlin Goes Neocon. Mm. And it was that it was it was an article for Counterpunch and it was basically more or less kind of making the point that I think you're I think you're kind of hinting at in your question um, that in effect Russia was following the George Bush Dick Cheney playbook in Iraq in a lot of ways now obviously you know modified for Ukraine and for their purposes but in effect they were doing the same thing it, it, so manufacturing an existential threat, Right. So whether it was W it was WMD in Iraq and in Ukraine, it actually was also kind of WMDs at various times. Remember the bio labs, Mm -hmm. supposedly, you know, at one point that was a popular meme, you know, Mm -hmm. within the Russian disinfo sphere, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, you know, the the United States and the NATO partners have dozens of these bio labs all over Ukraine and they're they're planning on developing chemical biological weapons to use against Russia. And I, I believe one of those was to turn uh, Russian uh, young boys gay. Uh, there were other 
missiles and weapons under development at these bio labs. So that was one, of course. Um, you know, there was also there was also the uh the whole member the whole uh Ukraine is actually an anti-Nazi operation. See, this isn't a war. Yeah. This is a, a struggle to denazify mm-hmm. Ukraine. We're actually going and we'll, see what we're really going to do is we're going to pinpoint and target individual people, and we're going to check their tattoos, and we're going to do iconographic d- analysis of their tattoo, uh, you know, artwork, and determine who's a Nazi. And those are the only people that are going to get hurt, and everything else is going to be just fine. Right. So it was an anti-Nazi operation, kind of like how Iraq was an anti-terror operation, you know, again, like sort of tailoring it to Ukraine, but more or less following the same playbook and just kind of shifting as need be, you know, kind of shifting with the winds, as it were, Um, you know, then it was, oh, well, actually, it's well, okay, it's not really about weapons of mass destruction. And yeah, okay, yeah, there's Nazis, but it's not really about Nazis. It's really about NATO. And we're really actually concerned about a NATO base. Never mind that the Russians have had a NATO base in 20 years and Afghanistan war. But no, who cares? The Russians have a NATO base in Russia that they allowed NATO to use for 20 years to bomb Afghanistan. But actually, now they're so afraid of NATO that they're going to invade Ukraine and possibly blow up the entire fucking planet over this, right? So one absurd justification after the next. Biolabs, WMDs, nukes, NATO bases, whatever whatever you needed, right? And I mean, again, just like the goddamn Americans, right? Just like the US government, whatever the pretext needed to be, that's what it was. And everyone just had to pretend like it was for real, even though we all knew that it was all lies. Mm -hmm. Well, then who... Who's really benefiting? Because the Russian people aren't benefiting. The Ukrainians certainly aren't benefiting. Most people are not benefiting because we're talking about like the effect in the global economy, inflation. I mean, everything's fucking expensive right now. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's not just simply because of this war. You know, we know that there's price gouging happening all across the board and all this other stuff's happening. But nonetheless, everyone's no one's benefiting except I'm sure there's some people are or certain organizations or certain individuals are wanting this war to continue for some reason or another and who are those people and what are they getting out of it well that is very complicated question <laughs> i mean look there's a lot of there's a lot of elements there's a lot of elements that are gaining quite a lot from this the united states gains a lot from all of this the united states has a vested interest in seeing russian weakened they would love to keep, I mean, and they could say all day long that this is not really the plan. This is not really the plan. Oh, they're not really trying to bleed Russia. They're not really trying to devastate Russia through some kind of quagmire disaster situation. Of course they are. So the United States, the Biden administration, whomever, you know, they're big time beneficiaries of this from a grand imperial perspective, not necessarily from a practical politics perspective. In fact, in many ways, this is complicated tremendously, some of the things that Biden wanted to do. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Biden ultimately is uh, irrelevant when it comes to the empire. I mean, the empire has a, a logic of its own and the ruling class has a sort sort of imperial logic of its own. And I think that, um, you know, they gain quite a lot from this. Um, obviously, the well... I don't want to say that the Russian oligarchs gain from this. In fact, they've lost a tremendous amount overall from all of this. The sanctions and everything else have really hurt a lot of those oligarchs. However, uh, Russian petty bourgeois elements gain a tremendous amount from this war. And what I mean by that, who do you think is going to get the uh, reconstruction contracts in Mariupol? It's going to be Russian contractors, Russian construction companies, Russian engineers, Russian, you know, civil engineers and so forth who are going to come in, who are going to, you know, rebuild whatever's been damaged and so forth, at least, you know. For money, for the money, you know, right. <laughs> whether or not they're going to do it well is a, is a separate question. But, you know, it reminds me, of course, of the kind of, um, you know, predatory, uh, vicious war capitalism that we saw with the United States in Iraq. Again, you know, where whether it was Halliburton or Bechtel or uh, Raytheon or whichever the company was, you know, there were plenty of elements in the United States who were benefiting a, tr- a great deal 
from that war directly in the form of contracts, you know, and that is very much the case for a, a whole layer of Russian companies who, by the way, are desperate for this. Remember that the Russian economy is also tanking. So um, there are um, plenty of motivations within that layer of Russian society. Now, from a broader perspective, however, Russia is, in my view at least, um, hemorrhaging quite a lot because of this war. And uh, one of those things that is hemorrhaging is human capital. Like I mentioned already, I mean, if you look on the streets, I mean, there are a lot of young men are missing in Russia, and it's not because they're all fighting in the war. Mm-hmm. Plenty of them have left, and they ain't coming back, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, that would be your computer engineers and your doctors and your lawyers and your, you know, your educated, you know, um, professionals and various other types who have fled the country and may not come back, right? Now, you can say, and Putin's people do say this, that Russia is not going to you know, be destroyed by that. Russia can, can withstand that and that it's probably for the best because those were the uh, fifth columnists, right? Those who were working against Russia's interests from the inside or whatever, right? But a practical look at it, I think, tells you that Russia has been set back at least one or two generations from all of this. Uh, Russia cannot, cannot uh, function economically speaking. Russia can't uh, secure advanced uh, machine parts to service its uh, airplane fleet, to service its uh, ships. It can't secure cargo insurance to insure the tank oil tankers. It can't uh, do, I mean, I could run down the list. It can't do any number of things. It can't conduct business with most countries except in its own currency, which is extremely problematic. Uh, Russia is forced to sell its oil and gas at extreme discounts on the global market to countries like India and China uh, just to get just to entice them to buy it. So the situation for Russia is a complicated one, a very difficult one. And I think that, um, again, it may not bring down the government in Russia, but it is going to create and it is already creating a level of social anxiety that is difficult to um, reverse, you know, and um, I'm very interested to see how long that goes on because, you know, like I was talking with, um, you know, Russian political scientist and, you know, uh, author Boris Kogorlitsky recently. Hey, he, he said, listen, people were poor. This has made them poorer and they're going to get poorer still. And everybody knows this, right? Things were bad. They're much worse now, and they're going to be even worse in the future, right? And that is the mindset of a, of a big chunk, maybe the, the, the vast majority of Russian society. So, yeah, the situation for inside of Russia is tense. Um, and I guess I'm kind of deviated a little bit from your question. Going back to your question, who's benefiting from this? I mean, the United States benefits from this. Certain elements in Russia benefit from this. Um, in the grand scheme of things, Putin definitely doesn't. Uh, I think he thought he might in the very beginning. I think he thought this was going to be a signature moment for him, one to etch his name into the history books, and he miscalculated quite badly. Hmm. Okay. Um, so one of the dangers that you, you were talking about, the danger of, of nuclear, uh, using tactical nukes in uh, in Ukraine so it's kind of this thing, right? It's like if Russia continues to, I don't want to say lose, but they suffer losses and as it gets worse and worse, um, obviously the tactic on their end, as you've described, was to wait out the Europeans, right? So there just seems to be this waiting out thing. Both sides are kind of like, how long can each side go? You know, how long can we, can we uh, extend this? You have certain figures that are saying, "Look, we need to we need to find a negotiation here. There ha- we have to end this war as soon as possible in the best possible way. The longer we go, the worse it's going to get, and the more cornered someone like Putin will be." The way you talk about Putin, I feel like a lot of times people describe him as this like. Certainly, he's a powerful individual and has grand ambitions, and he is. Uh, a leader of a, of a powerful nation with a, a grand history to it. So that's going to affect people's ability to make decisions that, that affects 
innumerable populations. So many people are affected by this type of shit, right? So the danger that people see is like, okay, Putin is this like maniacal madman. He's going to launch nukes. It's going to start, you know, World War III or whatever. So we need to just like, we need to give him what he wants and then walk away. I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this perspective. I mean, I do think everybody wants the, well, not everybody, but many people want the war to end for obvious reasons. And so, you know, what does that look like, at least in maybe Putin's mind and the Ukrainians' minds, like the U.S.? I mean, what would it look like for this conflict to really come to a close in the best possible way? I mean, you know, I, if I, if I could, if I could wave a wand and make it happen, that would be great. You know, I don't know. There's a, there's a set, there's, there's overlapping sets of complicated factors here. I mean, from a basic perspective, um, you have to ask a question about this negotiation, right? So to call for negotiation is not some kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, active, uh, I don't know what what's the word I'm looking for. It's not some kind of supernatural action or something. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what does a negotiation mean? Oh, we we must negotiate. What negotiate? What? 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 On what terms? Over what? In what context? Right. So you don't just you don't get to just say we have to negotiate. Okay, we have to negotiate now. Okay, does that mean freeze? Freeze hostilities and everybody stays exactly where they are, including the four the four uh, provinces of Ukraine that Russia has officially annexed and currently occupies, where is the motivation on the part of Ukraine to enter into a negotiation on those terms? Ukraine has the offensive. Ukraine has the initiative here. Their counteroffensive was successful over the last two months. They've regained significant territory. They've demonstrated their ability to hammer the Russians in a number of different ways, both through, uh, you know, intelligence uh, uh, actions, guerrilla-type actions, like we saw with the bridge, you know, the Crimea Bridge, uh, the Kirch, uh, Kirch Bridge, or as we've seen with military uh, counteroffensives. So for the Ukrainians, from their perspective, What's there to negotiate? The only reason to negotiate is if the negotiation begins with the Russians returning to the February 24th line, to the line where they were when this began, Mm -hmm. right? Not to the line between 2014, right? But back to the 2024, excuse me, to the February 24th, 2022 line when this stage of the war began, right? So if you're Ukraine, that makes that that's only obvious that's the obvious starting point if you're russia that's impossible you're telling me the russians will have will be able to somehow turn around and convince their population that 70 60 maybe 50,000 russian soldiers have died and now we're going to negotiate and we will have gained nothing in all of that time it's impossible from the russian perspective so to me how we begin is 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 itself a million dollar question mm-hmm. right it's obvious that there's going to have to be some kind of territorial concession on both sides whatever mm-hmm. that looks like my guess would be that the russians are going to need to be able and this is me being extremely optimistic which is totally not my personality and not who i am <laughs> but mm-hmm. but if i'm being extremely optimistic um then there's a possibility that the russians might retreat back to that february 24th line in exchange for formal international recognition of crimea as russian Mm-hmm. Remember that Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. It is not recognized as Russian territory uh, um, by most countries in the world. The Russians have said they're unwilling to discuss anything related to Crimea. So they're certainly unwilling to discuss the idea of Crimea becoming Ukrainian again, or the idea of Crimea being some kind of federated autonomous territory or what have you, right? The Russians are not interested in that. The Ukrainians have demanded the return of Crimea. So to me, it would make sense that a logical starting point of a compromise would be over some kind of formal recognition of Crimea as Russian in exchange for 
a retreat of Russian forces of some kind to some mutually agreed upon line that isn't the full annexation of Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, and Lugansk, right? Now, that would be probably a starting point. I don't know that the Ukrainians would go for that. I don't know. But one would have to think that at some point, Washington has to get on the phone and start leaning on Kiev a little harder and saying, look, it's time to start making a deal and I don't care what you want. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Um, so that's one aspect of it. At the same time, there would also, there would also have to be a parallel track negotiation process regarding the sanctions. There's no reason for the Russians to engage in some kind of drawn-out peace talks unless they have a guarantee of immediate sanctions relief, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the only way that could happen is if, the, if that negotiation was also, you know, essentially simultaneously going on, right? That, that in addition to the negotiation over the battlefield and the territory, there's also a negotiation between Russia on the one hand and Europe – and the United States on the other to either ease this, I mean, initially to ease the sanctions and hopefully eventually with the end of the war, remove the sanctions entirely, right? Or to some degree, to whatever degree possible. Um, now, that seems, again, extremely optimistic. And I don't, <clears throat> I wouldn't hold my breath for it to go like that. But in answer to the question, what might it look like? That's what it might look like. And, 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 and the point being here that it would ultimately be a compromise that would absolutely uh, upset everybody and please nobody. There's no question about that. The Russians are going to be – there's no way the Russians are going to be pleased with what they get out of it. And there's absolutely no way the Ukrainians will be pleased with what they get out of it. And that's probably the way it, it should be. I hate to agree with Kissinger, but I do. <laughs> it happens every once in a while. We can't help it. Um, uh, he's, he, he wrote a reasonable piece about uh, uh, the war recently. Really? Fairly reasonable. Much more reasonable than many others. That's interesting. Hmm. Guys live long enough to write a, re- write a reasonable piece on something. Well, you know, I mean, but he is, but to be fair, I mean, yeah. Kissinger is somebody who understands the stakes here. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a monster, of course. We yeah. all know who he sure. is, but yeah, yeah. but he, he does understand the stakes. I mean, he did live through a tremendous amount of this history and understands what the Russians are capable of and understands what could potentially happen if we make a wrong move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are that's that's fair, of course. Um, yeah, I, I feel like you're. Yeah, you said you know this is almost an optimistic view that a negotiation could even where the the opening of that even happening seems optimistic. It just feels like this is. I'm sorry, this feels like the thing that you have feared back when we spoke in March is that this would be a prolonged thing and it would just get fucking worse and that this is a quagmire. Yep. And that the character of the the Russian invasion is just that it they can't like you, when you said earlier like it just it just is not you can't even enter the mind of someone like Putin or or the Russians that they would lose and that is fucking dangerous I don't know how else to yep. phrase it it's just it is it's one of those things I I don't know how you know like how do you say to someone that wants a kind of a a nice little bow on top you know like a nice package of like this is how it'll end it's like it's not that it can't be don't get me wrong I'm not I'm not one of these moralistic types you know who's like you can't appease Putin Mm. you can't like you can't appease Hitler actually sometimes you can appease people and sometimes appeasement is the appropriate course of action mm-hmm. given what your range of options might be so i'm not some you know uh you know whatever uh, um moralist is definitely not the right word but i can't think of the appropriate word for it um but yeah. but i will say that um i do think that uh well i believe i believe in um maintaining i believe in maintaining peace to the extent possible. And I believe that when we're, when we're faced with a war, we have to work towards peace. 
At the mm-hmm. same time, I also believe that people are, should not be subjected to the power of their oppressors. And I do believe in righteous resistance of people who have been invaded, mm-hmm. even when I don't necessarily agree with everything about their government. Right. I agreed mm-hmm. with the righteousness of the resistance of Iraqis against U.S. occupation, just as I did for Afghanistan or for Libya or any other place. Right. Those people have every right to resist in every way imaginable, you know, with every fiber of their being, using every tactic available to them, using any weapon that they could, whether it's a rock or, uh, you know, a bomb strapped to their chest and they walk into, a, you know, a building or whatever it is. Right. There, there are forms of resistance and resistance to this kind of oppression is absolutely to be supported. And I do support the right of Ukrainian people to resist this, what is unquestionably an imperial revanchist war, a neo-colonial war, mm-hmm. um, a war of uh, a sub-imperial conquest, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's all of those things. And I believe that the Ukrainians have every right to resist, and I believe that they should be supported in that to the extent that they can be. However, I also believe that the war in Ukraine is so much bigger than Ukraine, and that we have a tremendous level of risk for the entire world, and I don't just mean because of nuclear weapons. There are all kinds of side conflicts that can emerge out of this war. There, there is, I mean, I'm just, I'm not even going to run through all of them, but like just to take a couple, I mean, there's already been threats of a uh, war between Belarus and Poland. Uh, they have a historic animosity towards each other. Uh, they are uh, bitter enemies in many ways. And of course, Belarus is closely aligned with Russia, closely aligned with Putin, very much part of the war in, in Ukraine by providing transit and so forth. And um, generally speaking, Poland and Belarus have already exchanged threats of um mutual destruction let's put it that way mm-hmm. we also have a number of other conflicts that are being exacerbated by this war both in uh uh you know in that region but also in uh africa in central asia elsewhere so i think that it's not appropriate for us to just ignore all of the implications of this war just because we want to adhere to the principle of support for liberation struggles, Mm -hmm. you know? So this is a complicated moment and it's an awkward moment. It's an awkward place to be for a lot of us. A lot of us feel extremely awkward about, you know, wanting to support a country that is being supported by NATO. At the same time, a lot of us, a lot, and, and simultaneously, a lot of others are very awkwardly standing shoulder to shoulder with the far right fascists, you know, as they basically, you know, simp for Putin or whatever it is, you Mm. know, if I'm, if I'm using the word simp correctly. I think so. Um, (laughs) and, um, and, uh, you know, so anyway, my point is that this is a, this is a, this is a historic this is a, a world historic event the war in ukraine that fundamentally changes how a lot of people act and and view the world and i think that we have to be mindful of that and i think that um yeah i mean in 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 a sense just giving in to uh, negotiation because that's what putin wants it is a form of appeasement at the same time we also have to understand that i don't I don't, as I've mentioned in in one of my videos recently, I don't think of Putin as some comic book villain. And I don't think that he's, I don't think that people do, do, you know, do themselves any service by thinking that way. He's not. He, even though he has maybe made historic blunders and uh, he's a vicious monster in a lot of ways, I still believe that he's a rational thinker. He's not a sociopath. He's not an irrational sociopath. And I don't believe that he's somebody who is, you know, hungering for the end of human civilization. So I do think that his motivations are knowable. And I do think that the more that he talks about nuclear weapons, the weaker he's indicating that he is and the more likely he's indicating that he wants to negotiate on his terms and that's what it's really going to come down to how much does the united states want to bleed russia and how how far is it willing to push 
this with all of the risks that are entailed. Now, I have to also mention, as I kind of teased it earlier, but this is important, and I hope your viewers and listeners really think about this and taking this away from this conversation. Everything is dynamic here. Everything is in flux. And much also depends on what's going to happen in 2024. The Russians and the Saudis have been very active in working with Trump and Trump's people for a long time. The Saudis have now poured billions into Trump. I don't know if people have been following this Live Golf Tour, L-I-V, professional golf tour that the Saudi government is funding, that the Saudis have developed. This is a Trump vehicle. This is to funnel billions of dollars to Trump without doing it officially, without doing Mm. it directly. And this is a project, a Kushner project, I would argue, to help to build back Trump's machine. And the Russians, without a doubt, are aware of what this all means for them and for their position. And I think we all know where this is going. And I hope that we're really thinking about this carefully. Trump is going to run to the left of Biden on war in Ukraine. And that is what is being set up here. And that is what the Russians are counting on. That Trump is the one who's going to say, why are you paying four seventy five at the pump for a stupid war in Ukraine? We don't need this war. We don't need a war with Russia. We need to make America great again. Hmm. That's coming. And everyone, you can mark my words, that's what we can discuss when I come back in 18 months, and that's what he's saying. You will see. Yeah, you will come back, and, and we'll revisit that. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Why not? And Putin's counting on it. That's the thing. He's waiting for it. And the thing is that if you think that the Russian government and the Russian state is going to collapse in the next 12 months, it might. It's possible. It's absolutely possible. It happened It happened 35 years ago, 33 years ago. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's absolutely possible. But I wouldn't hold my breath. And I would say that uh, there is a very good likelihood that um, governments change in Washington and in London and in Berlin before they do in Moscow. Hmm. Well... I think that's a great place to end the discussion. I mean, I had a few other little points I wanted to get to, but that was such a good closer. I mean, I can't <laughs> ask another I can't, question. I can't, I can't help but be poetic. What can I tell you? <laughs> it's kind of funny when I interview people and someone, like, I know the hour's coming up, and I have a couple points I want to bring up, but it just doesn't fit. So it's like, <laughs> well, whatever. Well, we'll do. It. we'll have to do another one then. Yeah, well, if you have time. I mean, the sure. two points I was going to bring up was Nord Stream – sabotage and uh the daughter of alexander dugan well what can you say i mean i'll hit those in for a couple minutes what can you say about Nord Stream? who knows it's unclear right now i i began by thinking about it in the in the sense of there really was only two possibilities um the russians or the americans um i leaned a little bit more to the russians only because it seemed uh that they had more benefit um because well, frankly, because the Americans uh, had already destroyed Nord Stream 2. Mm. Nord Stream 2 was scuttled the minute Putin invaded Ukraine. So uh, the idea that the, uh, that the situation with the Russians and the Germans was going to fundamentally change by the Americans taking out Nord Stream, boy, that seems like an extreme risk for mm. for Washington like why you know mm. Washington just sit back and do nothing and they're benefiting from all of you know from all of the chaos like it didn't seem it didn't seem like the kind of thing Washington would have done now i'm not saying it's impossible but like it just didn't make a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of sense i yeah. could see it making a little bit more sense for the russians just because well i mean from the american perspective there's a risk there right you could potentially be in, be endangering your NATO alliance if Denmark or you know uh, Germany, through their own surveillance and their own intelligence, finds out who carried out this attack. And oh, it was the Americans. Mm-hmm. Are you fucking kidding me? You know what I mean? That's an international incident times a million. Mm-hmm. You know that could potentially threaten NATO. 
I mean, hmm. it wouldn't necessarily unravel NATO, the NATO charter, but it would potentially really cause a problem, an international incident for America and its allies in Europe. So I, you know, it's, again, it just didn't seem likely. Now, that being said, I could see more motivation for the Russians, for those in Russia who were basically trying to say, no, we have to go all the way with this war. There's no going back and we don't want to go back, you know, and it's kind of like destroy Mm -hmm. the pipeline to destroy any potential for uh, normalization and going back to how it was, you know, the status quo. Um, And so, but now... Then there was the information that came out in the New York Times about the assassination of Alexander Dugin's daughter, and that having been carried out by the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, you know, people can say, oh, well, I just don't believe the report. Fine. You don't believe the report. You don't believe the report. But it is what it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, you can you can not believe it, but you don't have any specific reason to not believe it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm sort of of the opinion that it's probably accurate. And if that, and, and since that's, I mean, assuming that's the case, that speaks much more highly to Ukraine's capabilities, Ukrainian intelligence's capabilities, and not only capabilities, but, but just, you know, their appetite for adventurous actions. I mean, that is extremely high risk to assassinate the daughter of a prominent far-right figure inside of Russia, just outside of Moscow. That was a big, big, big thing to do. And so if they were willing to do that, it also raised the question, like, could the Ukrainians have actually carried out a bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline? Like, it seems crazy. You Mm. know what I mean? It seems totally crazy to me. But a lot of crazy shit has happened, including the assassination of Dugina. So... You know, I don't know. I guess yeah. I have to put the Ukrainians on the list, too, as potential suspects. I mean, I've heard uh, Poland, their name was also thrown in there as a potential suspect. Again, I just it's hard for me to believe that, that they would have the capability and more importantly, that they would have the guts to do that, mm-hmm. given the danger. Now, people point to the fact that just the day before the uh, attack on the Nord Stream was the opening of the uh, pipeline between Norway and Poland that's bringing Norwegian energy to Poland to substitute for that Russian energy. Um, A lot of interesting stuff. I don't know that we're going to know. All I can tell you is the latest that I read yesterday was the Russians are still demanding that they be allowed access to the investigation. Uh, the European countries, uh, Denmark and is it Denmark and Sweden, I believe, are the two countries uh, whose territorial waters were part of this. And so I think they're the ones who are involved in mm. uh, investigating it, um, along with the European Union. And they are not allowing the Russians to participate. So, of course, that means, you know what that means. That means the Russians are going to say it's a fraud. You know, it's a fake, you know, it's mm-hmm. a fake investigation. The other side is going to say, well, why would we have the Russians involved in the investigation when they're the prime suspects? You know what I mean? So, yeah. so yeah. you know, I uh, think that's one of those. I think that's one that we're probably going to wait. We're going to probably find out at some point, but I don't know that's going to be today or tomorrow or, or anytime soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just uh, there's two. There was just two like events that I was just like, okay, that'd be good to have Eric weigh in on that. Yeah, the uh, Dugan the Dugan thing was a big, you know. I mean, it was interesting. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't a high value target for them, you know, uh, in terms of you know military uh, target. But boy, I mean, it really sent a message. I think it really sent a message. And assuming it was the Ukrainians that carried it out again. I mean, uh, just so that people understand, Alexander Dugin is one of the, probably the premier ideologue of the far right who has pushed for the invasion of Ukraine for the last 10 years, longer, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who has, you know, if we were, if we were using, uh, you know, the kind of racist colonial attitudes we have towards uh, people in the Muslim world, I mean, this is, this, I mean, this is, you know, (laughs) this is somebody calling for jihad. You know, yeah. Ukraine is a jihad, you know, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dugin Dugin and his daughter, they were some of the leading ideologues in Russia. And um, obviously somebody, somebody thought it was worth making a point that anybody can get got. 
and uh, she got got. Mm-hmm. And I only speak that way because I don't shed tears for fascists. So no, for yeah, no, no. I mean, it's it's like fuck them, right? But still, it's like whoa, this is a, well, a big deal. Somebody, right? This is somebody. Listen, the 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 Russian military is carrying out massacres every day, and and Wagner neo Nazi mercenaries, by the way. The Russians and their various paramilitary forces are carrying out massacres every single day. They are raping. They are killing women, children. They are doing all of the most horrific things you can imagine, just as militaries so often do. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend like, you know, the death of one uh, Nazi matters in the grand scheme of things, especially when that Nazi was calling these people subhumans, when they mm-hmm. were saying that these people deserve their fate, deserve the mobile crematoria, deserve the mass graves at Bucha, the mass graves at Izum and all of these other places. I mean, think about what 900 dead bodies looks like and then tell me that I'm supposed to feel bad for the woman that was laughing about all of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, there's a lot more that's going to happen in the coming months. And of uh, course. I'm sure I'll have you on again. I, I just want to tell people, of course, to follow your work. You publish at Counterpunch, as you mentioned. You have your Patreon. You post videos. Like, if people want to get really good analysis about the situation uh, in Ukraine, as well as just everything, really. I mean, you're interviewing a lot of people. You, you have your, your podcast that you do. Um, so really invaluable information is coming out of you and, and I'm sure all of your associations. So I would just, yeah, tell people to subscribe to you on Patreon at the very least. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. That's the place to go. Um, you know, small, small subscription fee and you have access to all of the videos. I do a lot of videos. Many of them are free on my YouTube, but some of them are just there and, Mm -hmm. um, Mm-hmm. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. I really appreciate it. Love your work. Love your show. Um, you know, it's my privilege to be on. Yeah, thank you. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast this podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash last born in the wilderness and if you support my work there you will gain early access to these interviews before i release them publicly Um, you will find other exclusive content there as well so to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast however you choose to do that thank you very very much if you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast you can do that through two means you can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long please let me know what your intention is with the message so that i can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast if you would like to also just go to my website lastbornthewilderness.com you'll find a link at the top of the page that'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable and that is it everybody thank you so much again for listening to this episode of last born in the wilderness have a great week